Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the book of Genesis chapter 15. We also have a couple verses from chapter 22 uh, that we'll be reading. Now this week is the second part of our current series, which is looking forward to a Savior. And in this series, we're looking forward to the coming of Christ through the eyes of the Old Testament saints. Last week, we looked forward to Christ through the eyes of Adam and Eve and, in a sense, through the eyes of the serpent. This week, we come to Abraham and we ask the the question, in what sense did Abraham also look forward to a Savior? Well, we'll find out from the text this morning. So our reading begins in Genesis 15, 1 to 21, and then we will read two verses from Genesis 22, verses 17 and 18. Would you please stand together as we read from God's word? Hear now the word of God. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven, toward heaven, and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to possess, to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God. How am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought all of these, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now to chapter 22, verse 17. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. 
And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths in our hearts this morning. Let's pray. We come to you this morning, Lord, empty-handed. We come to you asking that you share a word with us and that you give us its interpretation as well. Give us your spirit so that we can know the truth and so that we can have changed hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The thing I love about the God of of Scripture is his impeccable timing. He always acts, he always works, and he always speaks at the exact perfect moment when his word is needed most. And this makes sense, right? He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knows the past exhaustively. He knows the present exhaustively. He knows the future exhaustively. And he knows all of these things because he planned all of these things. And so in each of our lives, he knows what we need and he knows what we need to hear and when we need to hear it most. This morning's passage is God speaking to Abram at a moment when he needs to hear from him most. Because this passage is during a season of intense pressure and you might even say paranoia in the life of Abram. Because Abram has been in conflict with his neighbors, especially these neighboring kings. Um, You may remember in the narrative he's just rescued his nephew Lot and seems to be expecting retaliation of some sort may be headed his way. He's feeling very insecure. And in fact, in the verse right before our passage begins, he has just wrapped up an argument with the king of Sodom. And it appears to be a very tense situation for Abram. And so in the midst of this tense situation that I think would give almost any of us a case of anxiety, it's in this situation that God chooses to speak to Abraham. And God, you know, when he comes to Abraham, you know, sometimes I think we can be bad at cheering people up, right? We can be bad at actually um, really lifting people's eyes up in the way they need to be. When God comes to Abram, he doesn't say, cheer up. He doesn't say, you know, look on the sunny side of life. Uh, Turn that frown upside down. You know, he doesn't do that. Uh, He looks at Abraham and he says, and he, and he gives him substance to this encouragement that he has for Abram. So it's not just a matter of him telling him to cheer up or to feel better or to act happy. Instead, God gives him substance. And he looks at him and he says, fear not, Abram. I am your shield. I'm your reward. And he gives him this meaty, substantial, tangible promise And then he actually goes even further. So here's the thing. Our God does not just give cliches. In fact, he doesn't give cliches. Our God does not just offer empty words, cheerful words, but every encouragement and promise that he gives is just what we need in that moment and even more. It's something real and tangible and actually useful. And what we're going to see with, with God, the way he deals with Abram here is, is he speaks to Abram in a way that's actually useful. There is usefulness in what God says to this man. And here's what's so important here. The the passage we looked at last week in Genesis 3 
was a judgment of the serpent that happened to contain a very precious promise that the serpent's head would be crushed by the child of Eve. And yet in that moment, what happened was God delivered news to them. Now, he did give them rescue. He did make them clothing to wear. He did protect them and give them provision. But in a sense, he hadn't taken a step yet to make this promise come true. And so in this morning's passage, we don't just have a promise. We actually have God taking the first steps to accomplish the thing that he promises as he actually makes a covenant with this man and all of his descendants. And so in today's passage, God promises Abraham something that's almost unbelievable. He promises Abraham three things, and those three things are going to be our outline for this morning. He promises, he gives the promise of a seed, he gives the promise of land, and he gives the promise of a blessing. A seed, land, and a blessing. Those are the three things he gives, and that's our outline this morning. The first promise he gives is this promise of a seed. There If you think about what's on Abram's mind, by the way, I have this really nasty little tick that I do. I can't stop jumping between Abram and Abraham. So you're just going to hear me say both, and I hope it doesn't drive you crazy. Uh, I tried to stop it, and I couldn't do it. So I I keep doing both. Um, But if you look at what's really going going on in the mind of Abraham, by this point in the book, the first major concern that he has is... This question of having a physical heir. And and I think as your years go on and as you start to age, you begin to think about this question. Who's going to get my stuff? Who's going to get, you know, and if you're really wealthy, you you may be thinking, who's going to get my empire? Well, Abram is sort of like that. Abram is a very successful man. He has tremendous resources. And the question does come to his mind quite often. Who is all of this going to go to? Um. At this point, without a child, all of Abraham's stuff is going to be left to his servant. His servant's a fellow named Eliezer of Damascus. It seems that Abraham has nothing against Eliezer, but at the same time, this this man is not his son. This man is not his child. This man is not going to carry on his name. And soon Abraham will disappear into history and be eventually forgotten. And so after God tells him not to fear, and after he tells him that he'll be his shield, he tells him that his reward will be great. And Abraham responds, he says, he essentially says, what good is a reward if it just goes to this guy who doesn't carry my name, who doesn't carry my genetics, and who by all accounts is not my son? And his, his wording is this, he says, what will you give me? For I continue childless. You've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. That's how he actually puts it. So in the short term, there's this specific offspring that's going to come from Abraham. God tells him, your very own son will be your heir. He's talking about Isaac. And Isaac hasn't been born yet. And this promise, though, is bigger than Isaac. Because what does, what does God say? He doesn't just say that he's going to have a kid. He says, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, so shall your offspring be. And so this promise is bigger than just one old man and one old woman beyond childbearing years having a child. This is a promise of a whole nation coming from this one man and this one woman who are beyond their childbearing years. So look how God does this. He, he points to the stars. He takes Abraham out. 
and very intentionally make sure he's under the stars and he, he, he indicates for him to look at the heavens and he communicates something through the use of the imagery of the sky that's set before him. And the real message that he gives to him is this. He says, you see how I spoke and these stars sprang into existence? I can make your body do the same. All I have to do is speak. So he's reminding Abraham of, of, the, of, the, of his power, even as he shows him what he's going to do. And, and in an unseen way, what he's also doing with Abraham is, is he's, he's making this promise. And it's almost as though he can see Abraham, and, he, and it is as though he can see Abraham's heart. He can see his heart. He can see what's going on. And he sees that he has struggled and he needs God to strengthen his faith and to work through his own unbelief. Now, by the way, one of the fears I think many Christians have, they have this fear that they say, I do believe, but I don't believe as much as I wish I did. Um, there, are, there are Christians, they say, I have faith, but my faith, faith is so shaky and my, my faith wavers. And I have questions that I've, I've never found the answers for yet. You know, I'm afraid that I'm not a very good Christian because I'm not this stalwart, unwavering, towering example of unshakable faith. That's not me. And maybe you feel like that. I want you to know that doesn't make you a bad Christian. One of the beautiful things in the Bible is the way that God responds to shaky faith. He doesn't respond to shaky faith by smiting people. He doesn't respond to shaky faith by responding with anger. Now, he responds to rejection and unbelief with those things. But saying, I have questions, saying, um, and saying, I don't believe, there are, those are two very different things. You can believe and you can have questions. You can believe and have weak faith. There was a man in the Gospel of Mark. He came to Jesus. He brought his child to Jesus. And Jesus said, all things are possible for those who believe. He says that to this man. And the man's response to Jesus is to say, I believe, help my unbelief. So he has faith, but he doesn't have perfect faith. And he knows he doesn't have perfect faith. Uh, He has faith, but it is a flawed faith. It's a weak faith. And when we see this passage, one thing that we learn is that weak faith is still faith. This man has faith. It is not strong faith. He has faith, though. And we notice this, though. Even though he has weak faith, and even though he feels like he has intermingled in his own life unbelief with his belief, the healing still happens. In other words, Jesus doesn't demand perfect faith. All he requires is a grain. It's not the quality of our faith that saves us. Praise God. It is the object of our faith, which is Jesus. And at the same time, if we have questions, if we have doubts that that make us feel shaky, we should do, I would advise we do at least two things. First is we should seek answers to our questions that feed our doubts. If we have things that are feeding our doubts, if we have areas of the Christian life where we have questions and we feel like nobody's answering them, and we feel like there are blank spots in our understanding of God, and it is feeding our doubts or feeding our questions and causing us to feel like we're drifting into unbelief, the right response is not to let them fester. We wouldn't want an infection to fester 
in our own life, we would wash the wound, we would clean it, we would deal with it. The same thing goes for unbelief in our own lives. We need to deal with it as an infection. We need to answer it. And the way we, we, the way we deal with those things, the way we remove those infections, is by going to them specifically. By asking for help, asking for advice, getting our questions, getting our struggles and unbeliefs answered. Because there are answers. Second, though, the second way we need to respond to those struggles is we need to pray like this man. We need to pray that our shaky faith would become firm and solid faith. Help my unbelief, O God. I have learned from experience God does that when we ask. The book of James says that if we ask, he will give it to us. Here, Abraham has shaky faith. And God uses this image of the sky to strengthen him. He gives it, uses it to give him an object lesson. And, and he says, I made all of this. All I had to do was speak. And I can do it again in the womb of your wife, Sarah. And the text shows us this is enough to give him spiritual strength. That's, the text says, after God said this, Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And so at its most basic level, God tells Abraham, you are going to have a son and that son will have sons and there's a whole nation that will come from you. And so the first promise this morning is the promise of a seed. We'll come back to the seed, by the way. The second promise that we see is this promise of, of land in verses 7 to 21. The, the, the second concern that Abraham would have had, remember, the first concern is I don't have an heir. I don't have anyone to inherit this promise and all these things that are, that are coming to me. What should I do about that? What are you going to do about that, God? And God responds. And God told Abraham he would give him a land, though. Which is his second concern here. It's the issue of land. Where are we going to live? Where am I going to live? Where is my family going to live? I'm a sojourner. I wander the land. I don't have a set place that I can look at and say, this is where I belong. And you notice how in verse 7, God reminds him that he will give him this land to possess. And then Abraham responds to him. And the response that Abraham gives is, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now, Abraham is, is shaky in his faith again, but it's different. Uh, before the question was, you have given me no heir, Lord. I have shaky faith in you. And God answered that doubt. But, but now the doubts are, are different. Now the, the, there are self-doubts, seemingly. The question is, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So he doesn't have God doubt. He has self-doubt. See, Abraham seems concerned that, that he won't live up to his side of things. And that's justifiable that he would be concerned about that. If he knows that he's a sinner, if he's a humble man, that he realizes that this is certainly within the realm of possibility. What good is a covenant that you make with God that immediately you break it the moment that you make it? And so God's response is to take action. He, he makes a formal covenant with Abraham. Now, in our own day, when we want to know that somebody's going to keep their word, what do we do? We make a contract, right? We get the lawyers out. Maybe we get a notary. We make sure that everything is, is taken care of. Well, a covenant in the ancient Near East was sort of the equivalent of that. I would actually suggest a covenant was deeper than that. Uh, even with a, with a contract, you can break it, and there are penalties, of course. But in the ancient Near East, there was something similar. That was the covenant. And, and in verse 18, it says this. On that day... Yahweh made a covenant with Abraham. 
Now, uh, the word for made here, where it says he made a covenant. The word for made here is actually the Hebrew word karath, which I know you don't know that word, but it's just like a, it's a sharp word. It's a harsh word. Uh, it just has this, uh, this feel to it of, of, of unpleasantness. And, and the word karath means to cut. So it's not the word for make. It's not the word for create. You don't create a covenant in the ancient Israel. You cut a covenant. Now, when they're making our English Bibles, of course, perhaps the translators are sitting there and thinking, you know, we really should translate this word as cut. And then you can see the conversation translators are having. If we write cut here, people are going to be very confused and think that this is a typo. And because in our language, we don't cut covenants. At the very best, if if we do make covenants, then we make covenants. We don't cut them, but they cut covenants. And so this is a covenant ceremony that, that takes place. And it's very much in line with how covenants were practiced in the ancient Near East. We have, over the last, the last 50 years of archaeology has been really remarkable for understanding our Bibles better. And one of the things that keeps, keeps on being uncovered in the, the region of Mesopotamia and this area where, where Abraham lived is we are finding more and more records of covenants being made between various kings and their people. And one of the things that we, we have now is a better picture of what covenants were like and how people made them. And certainly, that was how you did it. You cut a covenant. And one of the things that you would do when you would cut a covenant with somebody is you would literally cut an animal into pieces. You would lay the pieces of the animal out. And then the parties would walk through the pieces of the animals. And there was a message that was being communicated when you did that. And the message was... If I don't keep my side of things, let this thing happen to me. So, so in essence, when you walked through the pieces of the animals, you were saying, if I don't keep my side of this covenant, then may I be cut up to pieces as well. It's a very violent promise, right? And then I want you to notice what happens. In verse 17, after God tells Abraham what's going to happen to his family in Egypt, the text says, this is very interesting, it says, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between these pieces. Now, if you look in the Hebrew, the word that gets translated as smoking fire pot is just billowing smoke. So it's just billowing smoke. And the second word that you have there as flaming torch actually could be translated as blazing lightning. Now, why would I mention these two other ways of translating these words? Because billowing smoke and blazing lightning are exactly what appear on Mount Sinai when God appears to the people of Israel. There's billowing smoke and blazing lightning. And so what we actually start to realize here, God appears this way here, and he appears the same way, only in a larger scale, on Mount Sinai. And so what we discover here is that God himself manifests for Abraham some appearance of himself coming through, walking, as it were, between the pieces of the animal. God is doing the thing that Abraham should be doing. Abraham should be the party of the covenant that's also walking through the pieces of the animal, but Abraham isn't, and Abraham doesn't. God is the one who walks through the pieces of the animal. And so in other words, this thing that Abraham sees is God walking through and saying, I will keep this covenant. What is he doing? 
He's answering Abraham's self-doubt with a guarantee and a promise. You may fail in this covenant, Yahweh says, but I will not. The promise, in essence, is he's saying, I will make sure all these things happen regardless of your performance, Abraham. Regardless of what you deserve, you believe me. You are righteous now, and because of that, I would sooner be cut to pieces. I would sooner stop being the God of the universe than ever fail to keep this promise. He answers Abraham's self-doubt with the promise of his perfect grace. Do you know what that means for us? It means that what Jesus gives us is different than what the other religions give. Because the other religions say, be good, And God will be good back to you. It says, you need to walk through those pieces of the animal. And if you fail, then God's going to abandon you. That's what other worldviews say. Other religions say, perform and you will be rewarded. But, But Abraham knew he would never be good enough. And so God responds by saying, I'll bring the grace. All you need is faith like a mustard seed. And I'll give that to you too. It's all a gift. If you have shaky faith in God, he answers you with his own greatness. And if you have self-doubt, God's response is, look to me. I'll bring the grace. So we see the second promises of land and so much more. Third, this morning, God gives the promise of a blessing. Later on in Genesis, in chapter 22, he repeats this promise to Abraham, but then he amplifies it. He tells Abraham even more what's going to be involved in his promise. And so I just want to read these two verses again to refresh you here. He says, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have heard my voice. Now, there is something more here than just God saying, Isaac is going to have a lot of kids. In the New Testament, you have this moment in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, where Paul picks apart this promise, and he does it at a textual level. Paul does exegesis of this particular verse. And what Paul does is he looks at that term, your offspring. If you look just in verses 17 and 18, the term your offspring happens three times. He says, your offspring will be multiplied. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Your offspring in them shall all the earth be blessed. So three times this this character, this person named your offspring comes up. And the point that Paul makes is that this word for seed here is not a plural word. It's not seeds. Your seeds will inherit the earth. Your, your, your seeds will be as the stars of heaven. Instead, Paul points out, and he hinges a great deal on this, that this is singular. In the Hebrew, the word is masculine singular. And Paul takes this to mean that there is something deeper than just a large number of people coming from Abraham's body. Instead, the point he makes is there's a specific person coming from Abraham. And this person is going to make all of those other promises actually happen. There's an offspring that's going to be one of his descendants who will bless all the nations, not just Isaac's nation. 
He doesn't say, in your offspring, your people will be blessed. He says, in your offspring shall all the nations be blessed. In fact, the idea here is so big that I think it's easy to wonder if Abraham himself really understood the fullness of what he was being told. He does to some degree. We know this because Paul says it's those who are the, it's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So in other words, those stars in the sky that God pointed to, those weren't really his physical kids God was promising. Really, he's talking about those who are of faith. He's talking about those who believe and they are Abraham's stars. Now, how many stars are there? I, I started doing some homework And, you know, I did the only thing I knew how to do to figure out how many stars there are in the universe. I figured Google would tell me how many stars there are in the universe. And then I discovered something that we don't know how many stars there are in the universe. Uh, In fact, the guess on how many stars there are in the universe is, is so impossible that we don't even know. We don't even know how many galaxies there are in the universe. What we do know and this isn't even really very impressive, is that we have a guess how many stars are in the Milky Way galaxy, which is the galaxy that we live in. And just in the Milky Way galaxy alone, the guess is that we have between 100 and 400 billion stars. Now, that is quite a range of of, uh, error. (laughs) That's almost not even a guess. (laughs) That's almost just some scientist just pulled a number out of his hat and threw the number out. They don't know how many stars we have in our galaxy alone. And when you talk about the sons of Abraham, we also have no way of knowing how big that number is either. If you think about professing Christians of of all denominations being very generous with how you define Christian, uh, there are living in the world today alone approximately 2.6 billion Christians. And that is an estimate. And then, you know, you can pick that apart. You can count out cults and false religions and false professions if you want. But at the end of the day, it's an incredible number. And then if you think back through numerous generations, it's really hard to know how many billions of followers of Jesus have ever lived on this planet. But here's what I want you to see. Every single person who believes is a child of Abraham. Every single believer is another star in Abraham's sky and another promise kept. So the promise that Abraham, God made to Abraham was, was that not only would he multiply his offspring, but especially this important promise in verse 18. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. This is not just for Isaac and his kids. God is going to do something greater far grander, far more beautiful than just make a bunch of people. He's going to save them from all over the world through this one particular son that God has in mind here, this offspring of Abram's womb. And that person is Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, we have every spiritual Blessing. Because of Jesus Christ, we have everything someone could need for life and godliness, Peter tells us. We are blessed, and all because of this offspring of Abraham. By the way, I misspoke a moment ago. Abraham doesn't have a womb. Sorry. This is a passage where Abraham isn't just strengthened, but according to Paul in Romans, this is the moment where Abraham goes from being 
seen as a sinner to being righteous in God's eyes. And notice who does everything here. God says, I'll make the promise. I'll take the punishment upon myself. I'll bring the grace. I will lay it all on the line. And I will bear the consequences if I don't accomplish these things. All you have to do, Abraham, is set your eyes on me. And in Romans, Paul points to this moment in verse 6. Where it says, he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul points to this and his point he, he makes is, you, Christian, can have this righteousness by faith too. This wasn't just a one-time thing for one man in the ancient Near Eastern world. This is something that is real for all of us. All you have to do is believe. How was Abraham made righteous? He was made righteous through the instrument of faith. He was made righteous, according to the Bible, because he believed that the promised seed would come. Jesus, Jesus knows that Abraham believed in him. Listen to this in John chapter 8, verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus says Abraham looked forward to a savior. What are we doing this morning in the text? We're doing what we always do. We're looking to Jesus. But the text today puts us in Abraham's shoes. And and Abraham, in this moment, looks forward to a promised land. He looks forward to a promised seed. He especially looks forward to a promised blessing. And he looks forward to this seed, singular. And Jesus said, I know he rejoiced to see my day. If Abraham is aware at all of the promise that God gave in Genesis 3, that promise we looked at last week, that the serpent's head would be crushed, then Abraham knows that this child will be the one to crush the serpent's head. But to see that seed, he'll have to look forward very far. He will have to trust what, that God will, will do this, even if it takes 2,000 years for him to finish it. How was Abraham saved? Abraham was saved by believing that the promised seed would come. How can you be saved today? By believing that the promised son has come. Thank God for Jesus Christ, the promised son who keeps all of God's promises. Let's pray. Lord, would you do a special work in the hearts of your people today? Would you give us light from your spirit to make these things real? We pray for the same eyes of faith that Abraham had. Help us to see Christ not only in this season, but in every season, and to believe and to love the promised seed who would keep all your promises to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.